Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Clean Libertarian Podcast. And I hope that this episode finds you well. Hope everybody's having a great week, a great weekend, wherever you're at, wherever you're listening to this. I just hope that your life is spectacular. And I have a phenomenal episode lined out for you guys today. I brought on Yes Really Man. For those of my Twitter friends who are around, especially those in the Sobertarian group chat, um, you know him, you love him. This guy is awesome. You know, here's the thing is that it takes a special type of person to experience success to fall from grace and then crawl right back up to the top. And that's exactly what this guy did. Um, this is a story of hope and encouragement and recovery from one of our own in the Liberty community. And I just know you'll you'll enjoy it. Um, there's a lot of great wisdom in here, a lot of stuff that he kind of lays on us. And uh, yeah, so buckle up and get ready for Yes Really Man. All right. And I am here with Yes Really Man. What is up, buddy? Hey, it's... Really good to talk to you. I'm glad you had me on. I really appreciate it, man. I'm 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 glad that we stumbled across each other's paths. You know, um, one of the coolest experiences that I've had on the Bird app is running across like-minded people who are also doing the recovery thing. So uh, it's an honor and a privilege to be able to have you on. Um, and you know, here's here's the benefit to it too is that every time I I get somebody spectacular like yourself to come on the show and share their story. I learned something new, you know, and so this is kind of like a miniature meeting for me and I, I dig it, man. So that, that's very flattering. I thank you for the compliment. I guess one thing I'd say right there is I had in the past a very big ego problem, which was part of my getting through my recovery and trying to be humble every day is hard for me because I have, I know that's there and part of my personality. And when you're good at things that can creep up on you, you start to get the Superman complex when you're doing so well. And it's just pride before the fall. We'll get into more of that later. So thank you for the compliments. But, <laughs> you know, I, I'll, I'm going to watch how they make me feel. Okay. All right. Sounds good. I'll keep them in check. But um, no, we've we've interacted for, for a while on the Bird app. And like I said, I would just wanted to have you come on and uh, share your story. And uh, so I'll let you take it away, man. Tell us okay. about yourself. So I am in my fifties now, and I've been clean for almost, you know, 13 years. Um, it's been since huge. Yeah. I make sure I got the dates right after this many years, you forget since 2007. What is that? And it's October. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's 13. So it's been a long time now. It's very different now than it was when it was only a year or even let me two years after you get past five, I tell most people, if you just follow the practices and, you know, keep an eye on yourself and take it one, still one day at a time and do the right thing as always pause and think now I do. Is this something that, you know, I'd be proud to tell my grandmother about <laughs> it's, right. it's hard. And the other piece I tell somebody, well, I'm going to the, now we'll go back to the beginning, but I'd really lately, especially when things would still tick me off. I'm much, a much calmer person than I used to be, but I'm still, I got a short fuse. I try to take a breath and use a five by five, which is if it's not going to matter in five years, don't be pissed off for more than five minutes. Oh, and damn. That is really hard for me. And I tell some of my wow. friends, one of my best friends is always like, he's working at night and on the weekend. 
like, dude, when we're 75 sitting on rocking chairs in the cabin, you're not going to be saying, man, I wish I'd spent more time, you know, finishing that PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> no, you're not going to say it. And so I tell him, like, let it go. And thankfully he left that job and has got a new job now, probably for me prodding him that his boss was, you know, not being fair to him as a person. And that's something too, that I, I recognize now I'll just tell him. he said, you could just tell him no. <laughs> right. Again, what's going to happen is like, Oh my God, this guy didn't finish that PowerPoint presentation. Like no one's saying that 10 years from now. Just tell him, tell him no. I say, well, is he really going to fire you? You're in a, <laughs> you know, a VP position. That's like, don't do it. Um, yeah, I'm not there, it. but still like, and some of the young people don't, they'll always say yes. And they'll always do the work and get stressed out. So back to the beginning, um, my family's been in the South and in this town and this region all the way back to, you know, before this was the same country it is now like 1670. So we had a lot of history of the family through the South came in in Virginia and then through those other colonies down to where I'm at and been there a long time. So I'd had a lot of attachment history and, and family, you know, ancestry in that city where I live. We know a lot of people and one side of the family was much more successful than another. They're still both successful. One of them much more and was very, very well off. <laughs> Okay. So that just to set a, a stage for what it's like. And I went to a private school from, you know, first grade through 12th. It was a college prep school. It was one of the best ones that there is, um, you know, period, especially at that point, there are probably some competition. They go up and down and there aren't that many of those schools in the town where I was in. And so you're one of like the top four and you're always competing. Like they put you in the same, you know, ranking like AAA for the high school sports. And so it's for the private schools there that they're, they're always competing with each other academically and that way. And so I do a lot of those same, a bunch of rich kids when I was a kid, it didn't occur to me what it was like to be one of the pores, as, as they say, you know, it's like, <laughs> right? you know, doesn't everyone always fly somewhere on vacation? <laughs> right. <laughs> what do you mean? Everyone's dad doesn't have a plane. <laughs> yeah. So, just bonkers. Um, and a sports car. It's like, but you know, of course I'm not, you're not completely insulated from that. It's, so I'd go to church and we'd help, you know, poor people and do food, food drives and all sorts of things like that when I was younger. And you do get an exposure to it, but you're still in that bubble when I was younger that, you know, I had to wear a uniform and a tie and a blazer to school every day right. and be around a bunch of other smart people that are very competitive at being good students and working toward that goal of getting to college. So in school, there were those of us that were academically inclined and worked really hard. And all my friends, we were nerds and not into drinking when we went to high school, not into drugs, straight edge, but not straight edge. Like the term you'd see back then from the punk and post-punk era where straight edge was a label. You just were. And it's like, I didn't want to drink. I thought it wasn't cool. And I didn't want to smoke pot back then. I didn't think it was cool. But what happened around when I was 15 before I could drive is my parents started fighting and they fought a lot. They didn't ever get physical, but they'd yell. Dad was torn off. And again, he still, everything was normal to the outside world, but I started really, it caused me a lot of pain and I couldn't get away. So, you know, it wasn't old enough to drive yet. Yeah. So I had to put up with the parents fighting and that didn't affect my academics, but it affected me psychologically where I looked for an escape as a lot of young people do. Absolutely. And so at that point I had an older friend that we carpooled with and a, guy's older brother across the street, they both smoked pod. 
And so in that part of your that twist, that part of your personality where it, maybe this is a cool way to distance myself from that. Before that, I would never would have tried it. And then when I did with one of my friends, it helped take the edge off a little bit. I still didn't start drinking, but I just smoked a little pot. We didn't really abuse it. I wasn't like a stoner and did it every day. But that's what got me past over the hump to actually doing any kind of drug was the parents fighting. And I look back at it now, it didn't necessarily occur to me until you do a little therapy or reflection on what it was that caused that pain. Yeah. You know, I'm not now, blaming them for it. It's just, that was my escape. And you hear that a lot. Now, just a quick question I wanted to ask you. So I, I you said you stayed away from, you know, booze when I would assume that's just because of kind of the understanding that you had of, you know, alcohol uh, consumption. Did you have the same apprehension with when it came to pot that changed whenever you did it, or was it just kind of something that you never really worried about and you just happened to stumble across it and tried it? Right before the time when I made the the switch and, and did it, I still thought like stoners and druggies were dumb and that it wasn't cool. And like, the, I think one of the things for the alcohol is some of the kids' parents, if they make it prohibited, don't ever let them try it. Then because it's forbidden, they'll go after it. Like with me with alcohol, if I wanted a glass of wine when the parents were having wine, they'd let me have a small glass when I was younger. I'd sip on it. didn't taste that good. If my dad was drinking, you know, he didn't drink a lot. He'd have like one beer. They'd let me have a sip of it when I was younger. So it wasn't taboo or forbidden. They didn't have a lock on the liquor cabinet. And I just didn't like it. It didn't taste good. And I thought the, the kids that I knew that were a little older, again, being those rich kids, they'd go out to parties. They'd get liquor they'd drink and then they'd wreck their cars and their parents would buy them a new one. Interesting. This, this was the cycle for that, you know, that socioeconomic class of people when they got to be that age. So I didn't, didn't think drinking was cool. Um, the pot thing though, I still didn't think, you know, drugs were, were good or cool. I think the war on drugs and just say no, that started during those years. Um, me being more again into punk rock from that original phase of punk rock. And then, post-punk and a lot of, uh, a lot of alternative stuff, a lot of goth stuff when that was, was around, you had that rebellious edge there where it's like, if they say it's bad, then maybe it's actually okay. Ah, uh, gotcha. Yeah. And so yeah, alcohol yeah, yeah. was mainstream, but this other stuff, it's like, okay, that's, you know, Nancy Reagan saying that's bad news. And <laughs> we hate the Reagans because of the dead Kennedys and, you know, Nazi punks fuck off. Let's, uh, right. Let's go over here with the cool kids who now, for some reason, are the ones who smoke some pot. I still didn't abuse it that much. Then when I got a little bit older in high school, I studied more, you know, we had psychology classes and I thought, uh, okay, what's this thing with the psychedelic drugs? You hear about Timothy Leary and, um, you know, the electric Kool-Aid acid test. That sounds cool and interesting. Right. And I was always interested in abnormal psychology, like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, dissociative disorders. And so I had this pursuit that con continued later into college of, I got a minor in abnormal psychology, uh, started studying it in high school. And I was trying to make the map in, in my research of how are psychedelics similar and dissimilar from, you know, ge genetic disorders psychologically or in induced ones from the environment, like from abuse. Ooh. And so of course, then in my being, <laughs> you know, 17, 18 years old, the thought was from reading the books and seeing those things is, Hey, well, I should just try acid. Right. Yeah. Um, and so Absolutely. of course some of my friends is like, Oh, you know, you could get acid and mushrooms in the mid eighties. Like if you just <laughs> like some other things I could have gotten, you could also gotten Coke. I didn't, that's later, 
Um, but you could just basically ask somebody to stick out your hand and somebody would have, just like they'd have weed, they'd have a mushrooms or acid. Um, and so Damn. then I did that on the weekends. And it was funny then without the internet. Like now I feel like people don't have that understanding that we didn't even have cell phones. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they know. Like I'm old enough now that it's like, oh, boomer. It's like not quite a boomer. It's Gen X. But we still didn't have the internet really. We had like bulletin boards. BBS was like, you know, 9,600 baud, really slow. I don't even know listening knows what that is. Um, so getting with people and getting those things was more of an exercise. Like you call somebody, they'd say they meet you later. If you drive off to go meet them, like there's no like checking and seeing if they're still going to be there on with a text message or the cell right, phone. Right. You have to just show up at like the pizza place hang out in the table in the back and just wait. Right. <laughs> if yeah. they don't show up, you go find a payphone. And of course, if they left their house, who, what are you going to call? So it was, it was a different experience, like a little adventure to go try to figure out where your friends were that were holding. Um, yeah, dude. I remember those days too. Like <laughs> I remember that very specifically. Cause I, I got down through there, you know, when, and not the same time, it was a little bit later, but we still didn't have cell phones, you know? I mean, there was car phones, but who the fuck had a car phone? That was expensive. Um, you know, it was just kind of one of those things. By God, you're supposed to be there. And you got your ass reamed if you ran late. You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't none of this. Oh, it's okay. You know, no social yeah. nicety. Sorry to railroad your conversation there, but. You're not railroading at all. I'm I'm doing the monologue here on it. But yeah, you get the idea. You've, you've been there. So yeah. it was an adventure. And some of the folks also, you know, they aren't the most reliable people. <laughs> right. By the nature of the uh, the job, the, the drug dealers aren't the most reliable people. So it was an adventure. And there was like a little hippie neighborhood in town in the city that you go to. And, you know, one of the clubs that let the all ages people in, one of the little pizza joints. You know, there's some people that hung out there that we knew that live in that hippie neighborhood. And you could get the pot or acid or mushrooms from them. So then on the weekends, we would do that. That's like the end of high school. I still graduated with honors. I still did my advanced placement, placed out of like a year and a half worth of college, got scholarships to go to college, you know, full full ride before they had, I mean, the government paying for everybody. <laughs> you can remember back then. So I still did great that way. It hadn't dragged down my life at all. And so at that point, you also feel like, still feel like a Superman that, you know, you can do this other thing, anything that you want and still succeed. Right. Um, then I went to college that first year. We did lots and lots of, you know, whatever goth alternative hippie parties with lots of acid and mushrooms and flashing colored lights and smoke machines and, you know, just had a blast and still able to, you know, keep a good grade point average and do my studies. Um, but a couple of my friends in college got me into drinking. Finally, one of my friends, again, from those rich friends from the rich people neighborhoods uh, and his rich friend buddies that were always like, he's like, drink liquor. Yes, really, man. Come out with us. Have a drink. <laughs> he was a persuasive guy. Yeah. Like, I think you don't like it, but I'm going to have you try like six different beers and see which one you like best. Come on, man. Kind of, kind you of know? a nightlife salesman right yes. there. He's like, the girls are going to be there. You know, they love oh, you. Oh, sold. And Sold. that's the other thing that um, where I got the Superman, the ego complex, I can talk about that a lot as we go on is I'd known most of the people in my class, that core class of, you know, honor student nerds since like between first and fourth and sixth grade. Like I'd known these people, some of them for 12 years. So you weren't getting any play from anybody in high school, you know, because they'd known you since you were a goofy kid. Um, 
and I still, again, being that big of a nerd that playing Dungeons and Dragons and thinking drinking wasn't cool. I just didn't, you know, I was not a charmer and certainly not, you know, had no pull in high school. What happened though, is if you're hanging out with the punks and the, the goths and let your hair grow out and wear all black and wear band t-shirts and you're always got the drugs, they're like, wait a second. If I take off the glasses and let the hair grow out, you know, and the braces come off, it's like, oh, wait a second. The girls really like me. <laughs> Yeah. And they like me even if I don't have the pot. <laughs> Weird. Yeah. You know, so yeah, you have yeah. that, like, suddenly I realized, okay, um, I look back on it now, again, as being middle-aged, some of the kids don't understand it. I tell them, you see some of the girls and stuff online that are looking for attention and stuff. It's like, no, you really are beautiful and you should enjoy that and appreciate it while you're young. Um, but that made me, again, feel like I was unstoppable at that age because I could just go up to, you know, pretty much not whatever girl you wanted, but like if it was <laughs> somebody who was into that kind of guy, it's like, Hey, let's get out of here. And they'd leave the bar or the party with you. It was, it was awesome because again, I feel like I'd shot out of a rocket going from <laughs> hell yeah, you know, man. never having been with a woman to being able to just date how I went. And a lot of people just had that experience in college anyway, but it, it didn't occur to me until after that. And when you look back at it, it's like, Oh, I see now. <laughs> 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 wow. I didn't really realize that at the time. You know, you don't, I didn't think I was hot. I thought I was the goofy nerd guy because that's what my insides told me. And right. so that that feedback of like, again, you feel like unstoppable. So my friend had me drink more and more. And by the end of those four years, I'd gotten where you'd you know drink every night, go out every night, still had an effect in my grades, you know, still did well, um, managed not to, you know, wreck the car or get a DUI or anything. But I'd gotten to where drinking was part of the culture I was in. And, you know, I tried whenever somebody's always got a little bit of Coke at one of those parties, you try it, didn't really care for it. You know, when it gave me a headache, made, made my nose numb and make it run. And you're like, eh, yeah, feels weird. I'd done speed back then a couple times. Again, it's like that felt really good. And if I thought more about the abnormal psychology of it, it said maybe that feels a little too good. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Right. And that's back when speed was like legit. Like that's back in the day of P2P and crank and all of that. That's. Yeah. Yeah. It was late eighties, early nineties speed. So <laughs> yeah, dude. And there was another thing that was weird that again, from some of those friends that is hippie, weird, like biopharma guy that we knew that would come up with like weird stuff that he'd made in the lab, like two CB, which I think you could find kids oh, could find shit. now. I've had but, that. Yeah. I've had that before. And yeah. I, that's I, it's more around now, but back then, there was this guy, Alexander Shulgin, and he had done this whole, made a whole ton of psychedelic molecules and taken them, um, his partner, and there's a whole, whole book on it. But anyway, but some of the stuff he'd made, like unless somebody went and did that for you, it wasn't like you could go get it. And so this guy would make, you know, um, DET, like a precursor for DMT. He made 2CB, he made all this stuff. And so I'd still do the psychedelics, even though I was in a drinking phase, did a lot of those. So I felt unstoppable. I got out of school and then tried to do my own thing and have my own company kind of stopped drinking again and wasn't around the people that were doing the drugs, didn't do the drugs. I kind of went straight edge again for some years. Um, then I hooked back up with that same friend who had persuaded me to drink uh -huh. when I moved in from where I was, you know, at the college town down into the big city and I was, had a job successful and started hanging out with him and that group of friends. And again, there are people that we'd known for years and years. He'd known some of them the same way I had for since forever. And so you're very comfortable in this 
living in the city, you know, where the, you know, the cool side of town is with the inexpensive rent and, you know, you're partying, going out to the bar, seeing bands, having fun. And during that period of time, that decade, I got, I drank a lot and drank all the time. You know, that just became, again, part of my life. And again, managed to, one time I was going out to the next county over to take a girl I'd been seeing back to her place. And I wasn't drunk, but I was at that point where you're at their point of discretion. Yeah. And the cop takes you in. He's like, you know, I smell alcohol. Breathe into this tube. And he says, you know, it was like 0.08, right? Uh-huh. If, you know, for blood alcohol level. And that county is like, you know, taking you in. So... <laughs> Damn. Managed, managed to get out of it. You plead that first time, you know, and they, you know, get the DUI. There's like, here, pay the fine, go even back then, pay the fine, go do, you know, driving class and you're good. Right. Um, but that was that one time. So did pretty well with that. Met a, you know, again, did well with my career. Years later, met a girl when I was, I guess, 29. And really fell in love. She's a lot younger. And all of her friends as well. She, her dad owned a bar. <laughs> and uh, oh, some of her best friends, uh, husband managed a bar. And so it was like, you're just around people. Again, the culture is all a drinking culture. Right. At that point, you don't have to pay for anything. Like, it's just, you can drink for free at e- any of these three places. And of course, you still buy your own drinks to stock the bar at home. But I mean, I became at that point a functional alcoholic because I was around people that drank all the time and there was no impediment. The place she worked was a couple blocks from the house that I bought at that point um, in like 1998 in the, in the city there. And so, I mean, it, there wasn't any danger of drunk driving because I could, the other place I drink at, you could walk home. This is like a half mile away. And this place was two blocks. So you're living in town, being the cool people. And so they can, in terms of alcoholism, didn't affect my work yet, but it got pretty bad to where, again, it's like I, you know, I'd have whatever, three, three drinks a day minimum just to be normal. And that's probably not much for people who drink a lot, but then that's the minimum before you go out <laughs> and have all the drinks right, and come right. home. Now, were when you was, going through the, the DTs or anything at that time or? No, 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 nothing like that. I wasn't ever doing really not. A couple times I remember blacking out that I remember remember it clearly. I mean, how would you know now, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> but right. generally, no. There was one okay. time, yeah, I don't don't remember how I got home, but that was that was a little bit later. But no, I wasn't at that point. I was just at the point where again, you're functional alcoholic, but you basically have to have it. If you don't have it, you feel like crap, and you're waiting for the end of the workday to have the drink. Like I didn't didn't drink during the day, and a lot of your um, a lot of folks. Would, that are in the program will appreciate that, that, you know, you're counting the hours till five o'clock where you can oh, go yeah. grab that drink. Yeah. Um, and it still didn't occur to me that like, because of that culture, that that wasn't, you know, that that wasn't okay long-term. Right. It just seemed like, you know, all right, let's, <laughs> let's just have another day where we do the same thing. You can have all a bottle of wine. Yeah. yeah. Have a bottle of wine with dinner then have a couple of glasses of whiskey and then on the weekend you go out and drink a ton. And sometimes with some of the friends that I'd known from college, people, some of them would have, you know, cocaine on the weekends. And I do a little bit of that. And when you're on the you know, inhibitions are lowered when you're drinking 
and I tried the Coke. It's like, for some reason then I didn't dislike it, right? I liked it. I didn't really seek it out that much yet, but but people would, I get, at that age and with those people that you'd know, like the guy at the one bar would, if you just asked him, he had a dealer that would just drive up behind the bar and give it to him. You could get an eight ball like, you know, within an hour, anytime you wanted it. Damn, dude. Yeah. <laughs> that's the plug right there. But that's that's the challenge is that you're around people that work in bars, right? In that bar scene, those people know people who do that. And the dishwashers and the table bussers and the bartenders and all those people, that's what they do for fun. They, at least where I was, maybe they do something different in Canada. Or <laughs> right. I, I imagine everywhere um, you have the same same demographic. If you, if you look at, for it and seek it out. So over time, then I'd gotten to a point in my career where I had my own company, um, doing information technology consulting. I built it up. So I had five employees plus myself and had, you know, a little office, a temporary rental type space. You, you can get it month to month, but, I, and it was in the Ritzier area of town. Again, it's like a, I guess a 10 minute drive from the, the house. And, you know, next to a train station, you could go down to the airport when I had to fly out to see clients. And it was one where, again, you'd wear a jacket and tie and, you know, fly out somewhere to whether it's Dallas or uh, Minneapolis or D.C., you know, New Jersey, that kind of consulting gig where you just go where people need you. And a lot of the business, though, was in the main city. I was in it was big enough that the sustaining amount of our revenue was for the other consultants that I had hired and me in the city. And I just made it, you know, it was the right time to make a lot of money in the field. And for some people who are out, made a lot more, they're out on the left coast and doing their t-shirts and shorts and being cool and getting tons of money infused into them. There's still the, you know, the other side of it where you go in like an Accenture or whatever, and you wear a tie and a jacket and you get the work that way. And that's a differentiator for somebody who was totally comfortable in it because I'd worn it for 12 years as a kid. Like it didn't, yeah. you know, it didn't occur to me that you wouldn't, when you're going to talk to business people, that you wouldn't wear that. Huh. And so then you get on the elevator with the IT guy who's maybe just in a collared shirt, no jacket, no tie, but his boss is there in the jacket and tie. And he looks over and says, Hey, who's this? And then you got an end to get, start talking to him and get a contract. So it was very, very successful at that point. Um, but then it turns out that my wife slept with her best friend's husband oh, right, no. right when we got married for some reason, I guess she had like, you know, a crisis. And if she just said, cause she was getting with that guy right before, like in the month or so before we got married, if she just said, Hey man, I want to, you know, let's think about it. I'm not sure I'm ready yet. I know we made the plans. Let's call it off. But she didn't. And so for that time, right after we got married, she was still sleeping with her best friend's husband was also a, a manager at one of the bars where I hung out with. We all had a huge pool of mutual friends. And that broke my heart. I found out really soon after we got married and I was very depressed by it. Um, cause in that split up, I lost a lot of my, again, those, my friends, mutual friends. And thankfully they were newer ones. All my old friends stood by me, but that hit me hard. And you know, some of my buddies that, that came to me and wanted to help me out, um, figured that the thing to do would be, you know, do Coke, <laughs> do lots of drugs. Yeah. Yep. And I'm like, I'm not sure, you know, again, in hindsight, you look at it, it's like, 
I'm not sure that's really the best therapy for being cheated on, but <laughs> I mean, it, it's a coping skill, not a good one, but it is a coping skill. I could speak from experience, you know, on that, but it sounds like, you know, you hang out in some of the same crowds that I did and that we didn't really have any other solution to the problem that Elsa's, you know? Right. And again, having that, that ego that I felt, you know, again, I was Superman. I could conquer anything. I thought I could handle doing the Coke and still working and living my life, you know, looking for a new girlfriend, new, new wife flying around. And for a year and maybe some change, I managed to actually hold it together, keep my clients, keep making money for that whole one whole year. And during that time, I also met another woman and um, got married and she didn't know, you know, I, I don't know how she didn't know at some, a certain point though. She obviously did. You can't, can only hide it for so long. Right. And she suspected it. And she didn't, she, the thing is she drank a lot too, because again, that was part of that culture. She had, didn't go to my high school, but went to another one in the city. And we knew a lot of the same people is how we connected is that we had a ton of mutual friends and, and man, she and her parents and her brother just drank a ton, even more so than the people from that bar scene that I'd been with. And so the drinking got worse and the cocaine got worse. And after a while, you start where you can't really hold it together. You're too hungover and strung out and can't make the client meeting. You reschedule. You know, you can't finish the project on time, even though you were Superman when you were high on the coke doing the work. The work was good, but you couldn't get it finished on time. Right. And things start to slip and a few more things start to slip. And also you quit, you know, doing the same kind of positive energy things of going out and looking for more work because you'd rather stay home and do your little projects as I would do them. And, you know, you think you're making good progress with stuff and you fool yourself, even if you're not, you're lying to yourself, but you believe it's true <laughs> because it couldn't, because you know, it's not, you yeah. don't know you're lying. You, you're lying to yourself because you think it could be true. Right. And right. maybe if you had a moment of clarity, as we say, and a moment of honesty with yourself and self-reflection, some point in there, I might've said, yeah, I'd be doing a lot better on all these things. If, you know, I took a week, two weeks and just sobered up, took a vacation and went away. But instead that voice in your head tells you that you don't need to do that. And certainly the one in my head told me I didn't need to do that. Yeah. And you thought, Oh, I can, you know, I'll just get one more eight ball. I'll just, I can just do it this weekend. And the next week I'll chill out. Shit. dude. You know? And then again, over that time it didn't happen. And then the wife, you know, found out I was doing it and tried to get me to quit on my own. And this is where one of the things I think some of our fellow people that are in, in a, or have had this problem, I mean, some of the AA people is that you start lying to your family and your loved ones. And even if you could tell them the truth, there's that voice in your head, you're, it twists your personality. And this is an interesting part of this, the admirable personality stuff that I studied. And again, and you look at it from the outside, it's really strange what it does to your ego, that animal brain that wants the drug, the Coke, that's an addictive drug will make you do things and you're, you, then you know you're lying, but you won't stop doing it. You're watching yourself. I don't know if you've had this experience. When you'll yes. say something, you'll lie. And you're like, why the fuck did I just say that? Yes. <laughs> yes. I And and I just, I got to be honest. I find myself still doing that after all this time. Not obviously anywhere near it 
but I'll lie about dumb stuff, you know, and, and not know why I did that. That's interesting. Thanks for bringing that up, man. Yeah. So, and of course that upsets people. <laughs> and yes. If they're your wife, it upsets people. It's like, why are you lying to me? Why are you being this way? Why do you say you're going to do this and quit and try to quit and then not do it? I come home and find you're, you're doing it again. You know, you can't hold your stuff together. And at that point, you know, she's paying the bills and my work had just become, you know, a, a fantasy in my head that I was still, <laughs> I'd let all the employees go. I'd close down the office. Um, I found little, it was like a gig economy type work you could find back then. But I was, you know, getting into, you know, more and more debt. And, but I had a big pile of cash and investments that I'd made during that time that I was so successful. And so it wasn't impacting my ability to, live. I just use some of my money, <laughs> lots of money. I'll right. sort this out, you know, next month or the month after I got plenty of money to cover right now. And finally she got frustrated and moved out and we, you know, and said, you know, you need to go to rehab and there's a rehab place that, you know, I want you to go see. And my mom and wife took me to the rehab place. And it didn't occur to me that when I went and they had the interview, that they were going to do that thing they do where they don't let you leave. Oh shit. Yeah. You know, oh, the thing terrifying. Yep. They ask you the yep. questions. And again, you're just answering the questions that that's like, I ask you, and if you give the wrong answer to a couple of them, <laughs> then he's a harm to himself and others, a danger to himself and others is the term you write that on the form and then they get to, you know, keep yep. you. Yeah. You're there, dude. At that so, point. And then that for the, Again, there were little bits of work I was trying to do. And for those folks, if I had been wanting, I was going to talk to a guy about some work, you know, with a deadline tomorrow, the next day, whatever. I was still doing things, but this is like you went AWOL. You just went dark and vanished. Right. And they kept right. me there. And the rehab place, I really think this is unfair of them. After the time limit ends where they are allowed to keep you, the people there lie and don't let you know that leaving is an option because, like, We'll talk about that tomorrow. <laughs> and I, I didn't know because, again, I was, oh, you know, they God. have you doped up on um, drug to keep you chill and um, not to get the DTs and not to get panic attacks. And yeah. so you're sitting there and, you know, now in hindsight, if somebody I would tell them, you know, not even if they need to say it's like you, you do realize you can just leave now <laughs> and sign yourself out. <laughs> I didn't, you know, I was a so spaced out and in withdrawal, I didn't, didn't know. And so they kept me there for a month. Oh, wow. Cause we were still able to pay the bills and the insurance would pay the bills for that much. And then they wouldn't anymore. And then now it's time to have a conversation. Exactly. Once, once the money runs out. And that's, I don't like that part of the business and that no. part of the recovery scene because that no. was really uncool. And it, while it could have helped me, it didn't help me for long because it was still too fresh in withdrawal from the alcohol and the Coke to be able to properly deal with it. You see people in the meetings like that, that they come, but the, and they're hearing things, but it's not really sinking in. Right. And they're still in that phase where they'll just say anything. They're lying. Even if they don't mean it, I've seen so many meetings and seen it. And I feel for the people so much. Cause I remember being there even now, some of yeah, the memories yeah. of stuff have faded and I don't remember what it was like, but for that, I remember sitting there in the meeting and just, you know, you don't care. You're, you'll say anything to get the people to stop asking you questions. You know, you're counting the number of pieces of carpet between you and the door. Yes. 
know, this yes. coffee sucks. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that, um, isn't that crazy though, that like we can sit there and you can hear somebody and then it's like a flashback. It's like, yeah. you're, dude, it's so surreal, you know, to be in that moment experiencing what they experienced, but like, like get on the pieces of carpet, which <laughs> where you're at the door. I bet I can get somebody to sign this paper. Yeah, you know, exactly. The parking lot. That guy went out there to smoke. I bet he'll sign it. Exactly. I got to yeah. get this paper signed. Yeah. <laughs> you know it. Um, oh, yeah. So that was definitely the beginning of the real downfall. When I got back out and started using again, because that hadn't put a dent in it at all. I still had, you know, some money wasn't really doing any work. I was doing little at that point, weird projects that weren't ever going to make any money. It got to the point like a tweaker does where you're doing 15 little projects and you never make any, you know, progress on any of them, but you think you're making progress. Yes. And <laughs> the, the wife isn't there anymore to tell you she files for divorce. And then uh, you don't have anybody telling you that. And I'm just burning through the last of my money. Right. And the friends I'm hanging out with then, because I've done so much Coke, are weird cokeheads. And at that point, you know, a couple of people who did crack. Shit, man. So, and did, did they all know that, like, you had a little nest egg that you were dipping into? Well, people know when it's like you never say that you can't cover something or can't float them, you know, right. or that you, when you never say you don't want to go out and, and score. Right. So they knew. And one of the guys was, you know, a friend that I'd known for a long time was actually an ex employee that we'd partied with some. Again, this is a huge mistake, right? Yeah. Because he, the guy, says, I've made a huge mistake. And he said that to me when the first time he let me try uh, crack because we just didn't have any powder. And it was like, Triton, he said, I have just done you a huge disservice. Yeah, dude. This, this was a huge mistake. Yeah. Yeah. So, and at that point, you know, again, you're not working, you're not, eating regularly you're not you're you starting that life for any of the people who are listening or people you've known once you're on that part of the path there's yeah, it's it's hammer down hit. dude because it's over especially yeah. that transition from powder to hard like it's so uh yeah it's rough yeah. and again looking back on it again it's that series of decisions that at some point there as an addict um you make them, you look back and you're like, God, why the hell did I do that? But at the time you'll rationalize anything to continue in that path. And you think, you know, um, I'm going to kick tomorrow. That's a famous lyric. <laughs> oh, um, yes. right. Uh, yeah. I'm going to kick tomorrow. Yeah. But I, we still got some left and Hey, <laughs> maybe Jimmy's still up there at our little town. It's like, and that guy, we'll call him Jimmy. <laughs> Um, sold <laughs> a crack and he had like a trap house too, where the, right. um, the people who said they didn't do it for money and would take money and immediately buy the drugs and do them with you and then have sex with you. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh -huh. yep. like, there's a name for those people, um, <laughs> you know, which is really funny. Cause if you ever said, Hey, I'll just give you some, some rock, some hard. It was like, I don't do it for that. Right. I was like, Oh, I'll give you 200 bucks. Yeah. Let's go. Let's go lay down. And <laughs> And immediately they get the money and turn around and go talk to Jimmy and get some more rocks. Oh, I was like, it, how is that different? <laughs> <laughs> I, I realize it is, but it's not. Uh, so, yeah. And then ha you're hanging out with really bad people at that point. Like, <laughs> yeah. I went with this girl I started hanging out with who was friends with my 
my friend who got me into it, um, into the crack with, I'd drive around cause I still had the car. I wasn't paying any bills anymore. Like, and I wasn't paying on the house that that was all just gone. I wouldn't pay in. I just string the people along if they called and we were driving around. I had wrecked my car and gotten <laughs> a rental car <laughs> and we were nice. driving around. I would drive this girl and she would post online as they do. And I'd drive her around to meet people and I would wait in the car <laughs> nice, <laughs> and smoke, you know, the, the crack. And then she would come out and we'd take the money and go buy more. And she'd give me a little bit for being her driver. And as I look back at this, it's like coming from a college prep school and having scholarships and having a brilliant future, owning your own business to what am I doing? <laughs> like you're like the trap house transport. You're the Jason Statham of the South side, dude. Yeah. <laughs> so that, yeah, that I, I'm not trying to, but I can laugh because dude, I get it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I it's it. just such a fall and so yes. big. And again, at this point, there, there's that creeping reality for you when you do get that moment. It's like, what am I doing? But you still do it. Right. Um, I mean, I, to that guy's house, I've ridden a bike up there. I'd walked up to a place that this restaurant that the, that dealer would be to. And it's like, there's, it's a long way, but it's, there was nothing that's going to stop you at that point. Right. Um, the addiction, that craving that I talk about in recovery and with people, the psychology of it, it's so strong. It's stronger than, and for those of you that have experienced it, than any of your other drives like that, that other than like just staying alive at the bare minimum, you drink enough water, you know, like you prefer it over food, you prefer it over, you know, comfort. And that feeling I described to somebody is like, they're saying, well, why can't you just resist it? And I said, well, that pull is like having to take the worst shit you've ever had to take. And you're about to shit your pants. That feeling. Mm-hmm. And you know that the it's like that, but a little more mental and worse. And the you know the way to make it go away. It might fade if you can just chill for a little bit, but it'll come back when you get any kind of stressor, anything that stresses you out or triggers you as you know to get that feeling and that craving. And it's like you that lizard brain, that core of your brain knows that the thing that will make it go away is to go do the drug. Yep. And it is so strong. And for those of you that have experienced it, you know what I mean. If you haven't, if people say something else like, you know, whatever, sugar is so addictive. I appreciate that there's a biological affinity for it and it is a problem and it's biochemical for sugar. And there are people that have eating disorders. But as I'd say to you, would you suck a dick for a Snickers bar? (laughs) Would you kick down a door to a guy's house? For a Snickers bar, <laughs> for a bag of M and M's, are oh, you going to steal something from a store? Oh God! And sell funny. it on the streets to go get a bag of M and M's? You know you're not. It's not the same thing. <laughs> no, you know, <laughs> nowhere near it, man. And nowhere near it. I do not want to diminish anyone who has, you know, Overeaters right. Anonymous and has a, a problem with it. I'm not trying. It's not a competition. I'm not trying to make it that way. And unfortunately, sometimes that that joke makes it sound that way. It's just to give somebody who doesn't quite get the idea. It's strong. Right. I lost the car. I lost the house. I lost the wife. I spent my life savings on drinking and cocaine and crack until I had nothing left. I was, I had a crack pipe and a lighter in my pocket. The clothes on my back was walking down the main street in the middle of the city. And I had nothing. 
God damn, dude. So that was hitting bottom. And, you know, people wouldn't talk to me. Someone wouldn't even let me, like, use their phone if I wanted to call my... At a moment, I wanted to call my mom, come get me and, like, take me back to rehab. People wouldn't... You're you're so bad off. And you realize some people are looking at you. You stink. You haven't had a shower. You know, you're scruffy looking. Your clothes aren't clean. They won't even let you use the phone. You know, they don't want you in, in their place. Um, yeah. So that's where I got to. Um, and mm-hmm. I managed... I went back to the house that had been foreclosed on and in the basement, the windows out of the back of the basement didn't lock like, you know, his old house had been renovated, but, and so I went back into the house. They hadn't renovated or sold it yet and slept on, you know, the couch and place with no heat. No, <laughs> you know, it was like, that was that October that's coming up. Um, right. That would be the years. And I went, um, the guy bought, came in, found me, and rather than call the cops or have his brother like kick my ass, they said, where do you need to go? You're going, you're not coming back. And he got me a cab to go to my mom's place, which was, she lived out, you know, 45 minutes outside of town, um, retired, nice place. So I get up there and yeah, I have the keys. I go in, she's not there. I don't know where she is. Cause I couldn't call her. Um, and there I go in and of course just, I've been up there plenty of times, it's, you know, just fell asleep in the, my bedroom. <laughs> yeah. She of course had no, knowing what sort of things I had been up to had, and I didn't occur to me, had become kind of afraid of what I might do, even though I had never been violent or aggressive or anything like that. I don't, you know, just, but she was scared because she'd met, ran into me with that girl one time and just her, your poor mom to see, that oh, your son has become a crackhead. You were driving around. Yeah. She just happened to run across this at oh, my house. No. She was coming down to try to help me out. And so she sees, Oh my God, you've become, you know, a driver for a crack whore. And oh, even she didn't quite realize shit, that it's just, dude. she was scared when she came and knew that I'd been come into the house. I put my little bit of bag with a few of my possessions in there. And yeah. of course it included a, a pipe and stuff in it. She didn't see that though. This is important for the next point that I had just like a little satchel that my, the last few of my possessions, <laughs> Uh-huh. you know, a non-working cell phone and, um, you know, cause I hadn't, hadn't paid any money for the cell phone to work, but I had the cell phone and, you know, a crack pipe and a few other things. So she panics and calls the cops. Cause she doesn't know who's in the house with me. Oh shit. And dude. I was so in so much withdrawal cause I hadn't, ah, that's a good thing to point out too. When I'd gone back to my old house after foreclosed and I was, you know, hungry, thirsty and withdrawal, I'd like gotten sick and I had the shakes and I'm, I could have died. Right. Like I was that bad off. And so I was, when she was calling into the house to from the door to see who it was. And if I was there, I didn't answer. Cause I was like passed out. Right. I, I didn't hear her. Didn't know what was going on. So she calls the cops cause I didn't answer. And she thought, you know, maybe it's the girl and she's hiding. I, who knows what she thought. And so the cops come. I don't know what she told them to get them ready, but I remember I was so sick with like a fever and chills and, you know, that when they called me to come out and they're like, your hands up. And I, you know, couldn't keep them raised up. So then they're getting angry. Right. That I won't keep my hands up. Right. As, as you do when you're a cop in a rural County <laughs> and somebody who looks like shit, who's, you know, um, the mother is scared and hasn't told them why, you know, who knows what mom's old weird things that, you know, whatever old women say when they're scared. I don't, I don't know what she said. 
but and so they're they're yelling at me. I finally managed to put my hands on top of my head and hold them up. I think I don't know. And so they're looking through the bag and they find the pipe, which of course has residue in it. Oh, and the shit. way the law is is that possession, even though <laughs> you don't actually have yep. any any drugs, but the way the law works so that they can do what they do and punish people for something that even though it was a terrible experience and I wouldn't recommend it to anyone ought to be legal. Um, I want all drugs to be legal despite everything I just said for the last 45 minutes Um, (laughs) as a libertarian. Part of the problem is the part of the story we're going into next that if all these drugs were legal and we could have rehabilitation and harm reduction and then legalization, you could get a lot of these problems solved a lot quicker because you won't go for help if you think you're going to get in trouble and get thrown in jail. And you won't go for help if you think people are good. You're going to get something on your record where you can't get a job and you won't go for help if you get it. I could go on and on. So they take me to jail and I'm in jail. You know, again, I've got some kind of like a lung infection from I'm coughing, you know, from being, the effect of being in withdrawal and having my immune system crash from having been propped up by, you know, that amount of time that I was able to, to hold it together. Yeah, dude, you're just a Petri dish of communicable yes. diseases at that point. I, I was really sick with like pneumonia of some sort um, and coughing. And so then guys are yelling at me in the jail, quit coughing on me. And this is, you know, quit coughing over the sink. Cause I was trying to get water out of the sink or, you know, to drink. There's not like a water fountain. Um, if there was, I couldn't find it. And they didn't give you enough to cover up and be warm. I just stayed sick in there. Um, again, guys yelling at me, nobody kicked my ass. because like, They were scared of, like you said, the Petri dish. They didn't want what I had uh, in terms of diseases. Right. But there's jail. And you know, still, I've, I only remember part of it because I was just so bad off. I was really sick. And again, there was one. I could have died. They wouldn't go get you any help. No. The cops and the, the jail guy, the bail people aren't like, we're going to call a doctor. If you say you need a doctor, they think you're wanting to score. Or you're wanting an excuse to try to get out. They won't help you. So I sat there and got, you know, really bad off. And then I don't remember how many days later I was waiting for the, you know, for something to happen. <laughs> Cause I get, didn't have any way to get bailed out. Didn't know what was going on. A few days later, this woman comes and says, they're there to visit me. And she says, you know, Hey, we've got this program. And you know, if you're interested in it, we'll, we'll help you. And she tells you the it's drug court. I'm, I don't uh, know if you've experienced that or oh, yeah. any of the listeners have. And this was a lifesaver. And I didn't know it at the time. And what else are you going to say other than she's telling you this stuff? And again, I'm so sick. It's, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what it was before then. I hadn't come across it because that just wasn't my background. I didn't know. But right. the, the judge in that county, thankfully, and not the people in the big city who would have just done it a very different way with lots of, uh, minorities and you know people there doing the crack and drugs and the way they would have treated it in the big city was very different so i was very fortunate that this happened that in this county they had a judge who ran the program who was very into harm reduction and rehabilitation and ran that drug court program so i signed up for that and that's why those meetings and that progress with the aa and na meetings that that program put me through where you had to go to them and you had to get tested and then you'd call in randomly and see if you had to go in and pee in a cup. Um, but being made to go to that many meetings, you know, every day and then three a week and then, you know, two a week. And then, and you had to go in for the counseling session with them and you had to, you know, do your, do your thing. Right. Right. That's what made the difference. 
was that drug court program. Um, but some of the people I met through there were people in that, that county further out that were, you know, uh, meth heads. And so I also got exposed to some really wild people that I, ever, you know, I'd been with some wild people in, in the city, I'd run into some people one time. And again, I'm surprised I didn't get shot or, <laughs> you know, my ass kicked in a way to leave me a, it, with a permanent problem of some sort. And some really rough folks. Um, in the city I was in that there are Hispanic folks that handle part of that trade. And then the um, African-American group that handles the other part of the trade, right? The Hispanics right. do the, the Coke and then the crack is the black guys. So again, things would have been very different there. Like I said, I'm pretty sure I narrowly missed getting shot um, one time. The guy pulled a gun on me, a black guy, and I was waiting for the girl and he didn't expect me to be there and points the gun at me and that flashed through your head. They're like, you know, if I do the wrong uh, thing or this might be it, that guy does not look like he just wants me to see, you know, the end of this, right, <laughs> this yeah. gun. It's like, yeah. you're not showing me how cool it is. No, um, no, he's for real. He's, he's and for thankfully real. I didn't move and I didn't do anything stupid. I'm still here talking to you, but like that, the people out in the drug court program, the ones that were like that didn't get to be in drug court. Right. If they right. had weapons charges or violent felonies or related felonies like that, you don't get to be in the program. So that was also a different group of people. And the pills also were big by then. And a lot of people, you had suburban housewife type people and kids in school that were on Oxy and, you know, Xanax and things. And they're in the program too. And I know for the opiates that are like heroin that are prescribed as people get on that, that in the same way is really hard to quit. I saw a lot of people relapse and a couple just drop out of the program because they couldn't quit the opiates. Um, so I have a, a real appreciation for the difficulty of that more than what you would see from, there's some awful films and, and books about heroin addiction and that's terrible. And that doing the opiate pills back when they were still prescribing them, or you could get them with a, you know, doctor will just write scripts and to get rid of you. Yep. Um, that those people would go from that to heroin and that's just rough to see that happen. And I, again, having been through what I did just with the other side of the, <laughs> the drug class um, classification is I, I just really feel for those people. Saw a lot of that. And a number of people just dropped out because they had a bad case of the fuckets and um, it was tough. It wasn't like everybody made it through that program on skates. Cause if you did something wrong, they throw you in jail, right? Yeah, and you get sanctions. You get, you know, whatever overnight, then two days or whatever it is. I don't remember than a week. And at that point for those folks, if you're out of your job, if it's a, you know, working class or just regular job, if you're gone two days, you've abandoned, it's a job abandonment and you're done yeah, in the state. Sounds- it's uh, you know, at will um, employment. And so any place like that, that you, you worked, you can't, the sanctions, Again, this is, like I said, one of the things I'd like to see things change. The drug court program is better than, than not having it, but it's still this process for somebody who's having trouble, who doesn't have the resources and, you know, family and friends backing them up at all, yeah, or their dude. family and friends aren't clean. Um, then anything that happens to them like that, they can't get out of this track that they're on for their lives. I've known so many young people, young women, especially that when things like this happen to them and young men too, they, certain jobs they get that the you know, women <laughs> won't, won't do or yeah. And vice versa. Some women can get jobs quicker in that group, but I've just seen them. Some of the young women that would do the pills just 
it wrecks them because they get a job that'd be very easy to go pick up like, um, you know, waiting tables or whatever is not what I'm thinking of for them. But then if they're gone, cause they get sanctions, you know, they lose the job. They got to get another one. Yeah. And then if they, you know, fail out of the program cause they can't get off the, the pills, then you've got it on your record. And there's the only kind of jobs you can get. And you're just more likely cause you haven't built up, um, a pattern of behavior where you're always going to show up. And again, so I saw these young people, this woman at years, like probably 10 years after she was still, you know, in the gutter had been doing pills and heroin and had reached out to me on like Facebook. And then she just vanished again. I would have helped her, but I don't know how I didn't come to a meeting with me. <laughs> right. I mean, that's pretty much all you can do. And those yeah. are the tough ones too, man. Those are the tough ones, especially like whenever you meet them, when you're just now starting out and then you've kind of stayed straight for a little while. And then it's just like, why can't I transfer this shit that I have in my head to them? You know? Yeah. yeah the tough. first, the first, um, you know, a few days was really hard. And then for me to stay clean, it was like that first month for some of the, the young people in our group on bird app. And that, you know, either in our group or even the ones that aren't saying, Hey, I got it. You know, the month clean. I'm so happy to see those young people. Another one just yeah, recently, man. another young woman, uh, said that, Two actually recently, a good amount of time, clean time to get started. I tell them that's the hardest. Those that first month, I remember I would have my palms would sweat, I'd have panic attacks. Um, you know, I'd just you know freeze up, not know what to do. Yeah. Just it was really, really rough for the first month. Yeah. Um dude. after that, every month gets easier, but you still have to take it one day at a time because I would have adverse psychological reactions under stress. I think it's one of those things for abnormal psych that you'd get. If something's a stressor, it'll trigger you. And then you find yourself, your brain will switch from that or pattern of behavior, even though you can't execute on it. Right. Like you want to just walk out. You want to go right. find, and you don't necessarily even think you're going to go get the drugs. You're just like, you snap and you can't engage in the normal behavior. You know how this is. Yep. And the program will teach people ways to, to deal with that. And say, just watch out when you're, Hungry, angry, lonely, tired, bored, or sad. And watch, right? You know those. Halt. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and those are the ones you watch out for because that's when you're going to get that trigger and that craving and that old pattern of behavior will suck you in if you're not careful. And I had to, because of that short fuse that I always had, the, the temper and that ego, that attitude that, you know, I'm the smart one in the room and I know what I'm doing. When stuff would stress me out with my new jobs, I said, take, you know, Okay, take the tools out from the program and don't cuss out the boss. Don't storm out of the room. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, but I managed, I did some jobs too that it, I have a more of an appreciation for uh, working class jobs. I'd done a uh, line cook when I was in high school, you know, at a restaurant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I knew at the end, it was one of those things that you need to get yourself some kind of job this summer, son. Uh huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> Bobby, you got to get yourself <laughs> some kind of job. <laughs> I'm going to be out here with my various adhesives and fasteners fixing this thing up. And you need to be out beating a path to your paycheck. Right. Um, <laughs> right. And so I'd done that, but I hadn't done, I had to find a job, you know, they made you get one and every you know week or every couple of days, they're like asking you, got a job yet? Got a job yet in the program? Um, not our program, but the drug court one, you got to pay to pay them. Right. And they yeah. want, want their money. It's not much, oh, yeah. but part of it is you better get a job. And so one of the ones I 
could get while you're doing that is like an ice factory. Like, mm. do you, if mm. any of you guys know what that is, there's, you know, there's a big, huge thing that makes the ice <laughs> like a giant set of ice makers yeah, with dude. these spiral things that break up in the stuff into pieces. And then it rolls through this little conveyor belt contraption down into a hopper. And the hopper has a thing that rolls a huge spools of plastic bags and a puff of air pops the bag open. And then the ice falls into it. It comes off that part of the line. I think snaps the little snap tie on the end of it. And then the robotics and the machinery don't have a way to deal with it because it's, you know, irregularly shaped and sized and floppy. And so your job is to stack the bags on a pallet in a way that they are not lopsided and won't fall off. And uh-huh. you have to do that as fast as you can with another guy. And then the third guy comes with the pallet jack on the little forklift and moves them to, and brings the next pallet. And you do it again on the left side of that line and the right side for your whole shift. Yeah. And that's, and not only that, but you're in a cold environment and sweating. That's yes. the worst. It's the worst. That's the worst. So again, having done that, I, I very much appreciate that. The, that aspect of work that's out there that someone will give to you. They don't care if you're, you know, what your situation is. If you can do that, then you can get the job because that's what they need. Right. Um, they don't have to know anything. <laughs> Right, right. (laughs) Anyone can learn to do that if they've got, you know, and it's like, so you're just a warm body, like you said, that you're going to sweat and be cold and and wet and just doing this. And of course, the guy there, your little foreman guy is like, don't stop the line. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes you have to because something goes wrong, right? Something gets stuck in the hopper. One of the bags, things get twisted. It doesn't puff open. They don't break off that spool, whatever. So that was one. I had some other jobs like that. I got to work at a... Uh, Little Caesars, which Ooh, that I was at one of those. So you yeah. know what it's like. Oh yeah. Um, and that was uh, I got that job because the guy that owned that had also gone to the same college, and you know gave me a, basically a break and said, you know, can do it. And it's like being that overqualified <laughs> for that job is hilarious because then it's again you've seen like sitcoms and stuff like this where there's the older dude that <laughs> all the other people are young. And some, for some reason still works there as like, you know, the shift manager at the little fast food place. And again, part of that in the program, though, is teaching yourself humility and taking what life hands you and just learning to do it and smiling. And by that point, I'd gotten better at those skills and tried to develop, you know, an attitude of gratitude that I was where I was. And at that point, it started to get easier to do that because when you look back, I was like, OK, wow, this is this is a lot better. And, you know, I can say about money, um, I'm in a position where, you know, things potentially can go forward and, but still focusing on every day. Okay. Today I'm going to walk to work again. You know, it's, it's raining. All right. I got the shitty umbrella. I'm going to walk to work again, right. save up the money and get an inexpensive used car and just make sure that you don't do the wrong thing with that money. Don't get impulsive and do something stupid and have somebody you can call a sponsor or a friend who's in the program. And as soon as you feel that, that trigger, you know, the behavior you need to do is stop and talk to somebody. And then you can get, go with them and not have, you know, a relapse. Um, yeah. And I was able to just do that for long enough that I got into that pattern and can go to meetings, go to work, come home, read, write in a journal and repeat and just do it one day at a time. And 
got through the program. There were some other little jobs like that that were, I worked at like a Blimpies briefly. That guy was in recovery too that ran the Blimpies. So, what's um, a Blimpy? What's that? Blimpies is a sandwich shop. They don't have them okay. where you're at. Uh uh-uh. uh. No. And it's the cold sandwich shop. I don't know what it's called elsewhere. Kind of like a Subway? Like Subway. Okay. It's exactly the same. Okay. So, and, and like going through that, like, cause I, I, I'm identifying a lot of this and I remember like, that is truly where you understand the significance of focusing on the day you're standing in and that alone, you know what I mean? Like going to the sandwich shop for your shift or going to the ice factory or, you know, like all of that, like you really do have to focus on where you're at, not 10 years down the line or 10 years prior. You know what I'm saying? Like that is, that's next level right there, man. Yeah. And having those jobs, the recognizing and saying, I'm not, you know, too good for this. And this is what I have to do. Right. Um, to get by. And it's been really hard to learn any humility for me. Um, and you can get there, but I have to practice and focus again on the gratitude that I'm here, that the way I am, that I'm not using drugs, that I'm not drinking. And after a certain number of years, like now I can remember it when I'm talking to you, but I don't feel it the same way I did. It's been so long. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was telling anybody, you can do it if you follow this path. And some people, you know, rarely have we seen someone fail who has thoroughly followed our path. You probably know that. Yep. That intro. Um, I don't think I could do it now, but all the little pages and readings that you do, I had them all memorized and could do them in a newscaster voice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's see. Are you in radio? Yeah. Yeah. All of it. That's the guy said, Hey, you in radio? That's like, no, <laughs> you sound like a guy that does radio commercials. <laughs> no, no, that's not the case. I just, anyway. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I would tell anyone that for anyone listening, who's got just a little bit of clean time, someone's going to look down and say, ah, oh, it's easy. You can do it. Just suck it up. Or the other side of, you know, Hey, you should be lucky to be as, as good as me at doing this. No, no, no. I could have slipped and fallen anytime. I could have had made a wrong choice and then another wrong choice and another and not reached out for help. And I could have been back in the same place. I would yeah. just tell anyone that it gets easier. And that's something you hear too in the rooms. And it really does. Like at this point, I don't have any desire for it. If I get stressed, I don't have a, a trigger for it. I don't you know, I'm aware that it could still be a problem that I can't go back to it. It's not something I could try again just every once in a while. I don't want to, again, there's no craving anymore. And you can get to the point where your coping mechanisms and your ability to enjoy life as it's handed to you and to make your own way and make your life what you want is there if you all want to reach out for it, but you have to take those first steps and you have to keep doing it. And if you're not liking the group you're in or the, your sponsor or something about the situation, you know, change you or change the situation. And those That's are your two it. choices. That's, That's it, only- man. Yeah. What, what I, I like what, what they say. Uh, if I'm not the problem, there is no solution. You know what I mean? Like right. you, you ain't changing that other person. It ain't going to happen. So you can change yourself or the situation, but that's it. I like that. Right. And again, it's been a long time now and I really, I, I love helping people with it. I love talking to them online and congratulating them. Um, I haven't been to a meeting in ages. I went for my tenure 
is the last one I went to and, you know, got my tenure. Hell yeah. And just some people there and you know, people that have been like, you know, 10 days and never 10 weeks and two months two two years. And again, that humility of like, I remember when I was there, but I don't know what they're going through at the moment. Everybody has a different demon and a different, you know, path to get, get out of the, out of hell. And I don't begrudge anyone for having trouble and relapsing. And when I've had, I've tried to sponsor a couple of people and be a mentor to them when they failed the first, you know, a couple of years when they do that, you get frustrated, you know, and that, that they can't do it. But now I understand for people, sometimes the first try, that second try, isn't the one they're going to win. No, I mean, there's, and that's, that's the bitch of it. And, you know, here's the other bitch of it is that like, we can't call it. I, I don't care how long you've been in the rooms, how many people you've studied, you cannot call who's going to grab a hold of this deal and who's not. It's, it's a crapshoot, man. And yeah, that's, I'm going off on a tangent on that one, but like, that's, that's one of those phenomena that, you know, I've always noticed. That's why like, cause I, I have such a history of not anymore, thank God, but especially when I was starting out of just constantly relapsing that whenever somebody would say, man, Drew's really getting it. I would tell him to shut the fuck up on site. Like, don't tell me that <laughs> because that I'm going to go right back out. Like you can't call this man. Um, yeah. Uh, one question I, I, I did want to ask you is like with the recovery with, you know, as you learned, as you, you know, graduated drug court and, uh, progressed in life and started building your life back up, like how in tune was your family, uh, to that? Like, was that a easy conversation to have? Did they understand? Like, what did that look like? My mom probably didn't cause she never understood not having any of these kind of problems herself. At first it was hard for her to relate and understand, but she was very supportive. I stayed with her for a while while I got on my feet and didn't try to move out and go on my own too early. But you know, at some point you're like at, at that age, it's not like you come back and crash at mom's house. It's right. Cause you're an adult, right, you know, right. that that's going to end, but she would do anything for me. She's, you know, if I'd asked, I also had to know that, I can't take advantage of the situation because it, there wouldn't be taking advantage of the situation. She would just do anything for me, um, which again made her because she didn't understand and she couldn't relate to it, but she was very supportive. And my uh, half sister was very supportive. You know, my, um, my dad had passed on while I was in drug court and they let me go down and see him once when he was uh, sick with cancer. And they let me go down to the, the funeral, you know, if I, that way if they called me in and I had to, um, in a test or something, they judge knew and said, Damn, obviously he can't get back, teleport back to where we are. <laughs> right. So you get a pass, right. They give you the, if they call you, you don't have to come, come in. If something's scheduled, they'll let you come the next, next time. Um, and that was, I was doing okay enough at that point that, um, that, um, that wasn't a big a trigger for me or anything, but the last words my dad said to me were, I'm proud of you, son. Oh, uh, bro. Mm. So, I'm a little, <laughs> little choked up here about that one. 
Um, yeah, that's heavy, but that's beautiful. That's a beautiful heavy, you know? Yeah. Um, that was, that was rough for, for him at the time, but my mom kept him kind of insulated from what, what was going on with me other than that I was getting better. Right. Right. And you stayed clean through that. Yeah. That's monumental. That's monumental right there, man. And not just stay clean. We're not talking like five, six years in. We're talking brand new. Yeah. You know? During the first year, yeah. It was... Wow. That's beautiful, man. So the family was very supportive. And that really helped because, again, like I said, that's, for some people, they just don't have that luxury. I don't like using the word privilege. I don't, that's a libertarian and... Uh, <laughs> A <laughs> uh, different question for a different conversation for a different podcast. Right. But if somebody was going to have that, not in the way that term is usually used, as you remember from the beginning of this story, that would have been me. You know, like if right. I needed to go somewhere, um, if I were allowed to, it's like, you could just get on the plane and go. Like, then, you know, if I needed, hey, I need the, you know, whatever to do this or that, this wasn't going to be a problem. So other people in the program and other people, in the world don't have that luxury of just being able to, even after I'd crashed and lost everything with my family available to me, there wasn't anything that was going to stop me from doing anything I needed to do. And again, almost no one has that luxury. So it's, I'm very, very appreciative, especially now. And even back then, at some point I realized that you get that reflection that again, that I hate the word privilege, but if you're one of the most privileged people on the planet, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. it's like I said, that again, they're trying to keep that humility, but it just sometimes it doesn't occur to you. Uh, there's that joke we said online, you know, have they tried not being poor? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've done it now. I've been poor and gotten back out of it. And it's hard. The, the environment that the legal system and the court, even when they're doing this harm reduction and rehabilitation, they put you in a situation where it is very hard to come back out. It's easier this way than surely ever is for places who don't have drug court. Yeah. And some people get in the path recognizing it, that once they get in that revolving door of that uh, court system and probation, and they got to go in and pay, they got their fines. They got to go in and see the person and show up. They same thing. They've got to get a job and do their thing, but any failing they have throws them back through that loop. And I just am very thankful that I had the, the fortune, I guess, is better than privilege to be a person who just had, if I had had a problem, I could have skipped over one of those steps with far less trouble. Um, but I didn't, again, didn't abuse that and didn't just assume it would happen. And so I knew I had to make it on my own and not rely on the gratitude and empathy of others. Um, you know, if, if, Go everywhere with your hand out. Eventually, even your, you know, your family's going to give up on you. <laughs> yeah, they're going to going to put a stop to that eventually for sure. So that they were very supportive, and I say it's it's wild. It's a, a wild road because at a certain point I looked back and it's like, okay, has it been you know six years or seven? Like you know, I have to count in my head. Okay, it's like seven, two, eight, nine, <laughs> ten, eleven, twelve. Okay, seven to. 2017 it's 10 years so it's it's 11 years then i was like wait is it 2021 so that's three seven what is that 
Yeah. You know, carry the two. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But it, and it just becomes kind of a a thing that you do, you know, um, I I would imagine like when he, when you got out of drug court and all that, like you had to, it sounds like you had to build a new association circle, you know, obviously family's family. They were family before they're still family now, but you know, you have to make new friends. You have to make new acquaintances. And that's right. And I, cut everybody off in that old circle. Everyone. That's the completely way. cut off. Even when because Facebook hadn't existed before. And then when it did, when I got out and was on that to connect with people from my high school, everybody from that scene, uh, except for one person who wasn't with me for any of the drinking and drugging times. He was a guy who'd done the you know, mushrooms and acid and pot with in high school. Yeah. But other than that one guy who was my best friend from back then, everyone else from the scene completely cut out of my life because that again, one of the guys that had done a bunch of the Coke with me, it's like, he reached out to me on Facebook. He was like, Oh, you're alive. And I'm like, man, I can't, I can't see you. I love you, but I can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that I think also for people, you have to be willing to make that break and not be an asshole about it, but still explain to people that during that time, that it's just those people, places and things that they say in the rooms that you, the safest way to do it, is that, and it's hard because there are people that you care about or people that you really like and that you, they liked you and you want them to like you and you want them to know that you're doing well, but I had to cut all of them out. And I didn't see the one guy I was talking about, my best friend from high school until years and years later. And it was, again, I hadn't seen him during any of that time. Um, except connected with him on Facebook through another person who had seen people from your high school on there. So it was, that was good. So we got a whole new association circle, a whole new, whole new group of friends. Yeah, dude, that's the trick right there. That is the trick. Well, man, this has been an awesome story. I've loved hearing about this. Now, um, one question that I do, I did have one last question for you was, you know, you, you experienced kind of the executive uh, lifestyle, like, do you still have that entrepreneurial spirit today or have you kind of changed up also that part of it, of your personal life? I do to a point and I've done some things in that fashion. Um, they wouldn't pay all the bills. So I, I do work and let, uh, somebody else run the companies and, you know, I, I'm an employee now, uh, in the same field, really big companies, good benefits. And again, keep your, you know, your head down, do your work. I got an age there where the experience I had before, I don't tell anybody about this. They don't, you know, need to know. Like I said, there's no bragging rights for being more of a badass or, you know, yeah, in, dude. in college or school, it doesn't come up and just, yeah, totally professional. And again, it's one of those things that I was able to work my way back into the profession back up the way up the ladder. And I'm a very you know, fortunate that I have this skill and ability to do that. I think my mom always told me when I was a kid is that you got to remember that you're going to be able to do things. And I did. And so I'm more successful now overall than I had been before. And it sounds like you're way more peaceful too, you know? Oh yeah. That's I was a maniac, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's all we knew though. You know I mean? That was, it was part of it. I was just curious because like, you know, there's, that's one thing that I, I find with a lot of us, you know, the, the, the things that we did before things got really bad, 
we may or may not go back to them. And more often than not, we don't go back to them. Or if we do go back to those things, it's not to the same degree as it once was, you know? Um, and I don't know if that's a, an association thing in our mind, you know, if we kind of, you know, I, I know there's certainly things that I stay away from, not because they were detrimental to me, but because I ended up associating those things with my using, you know? And so, um, Oh yeah. Those are, those are just situations that for better or for worse, I just don't feel comfortable in. You know what I mean? I do. And they don't bother me now as much, but you know, going to see a band, going to a club, you know, going to never someone to go to a bar. It's like, I don't worry now about something triggering me, but I don't care for it anymore. And that was a, you know, Hey, let's go see so-and-so band is in town. Oh man, you love them. Let's go see them. And I'm like, yeah, I want to go home and read about the federal reserve and go to sleep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to read some science fiction and with some weird author and go to sleep. I'm going to watch a YouTube video on how to make a woodshed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a very different, different thing. So I still like continual learning. I think it's always good for everyone to uh, find trend recovery, some hobbies that are constructive for you to take up your time. I think one of the things is people not having something to occupy their time. That's active. Um, you know, thinking I, I recommend it to anyone is pick up a hobby. If it's knitting, uh, whittling, wood, woodwork, painting, drawing, anything that is that you have to act in, even video games, I'd say, because you're it's active and not passive. Oh, and then spend sure. some of the time you can watch films and say, somebody, you got a good memory, take notes, go on trivia. I played trivia with some friends that, um, that I'd met. Um, that's a lot of fun. It's something active. And for that, some places they do trivia is drinking is probably not. <laughs> right. Maybe that one's, you can do it online now. I think that's probably better. <laughs> That'd be way better. Way so, better than going to, to the local dive bar. To a to bar to, to play trivia, right? Team yeah, trivia yeah. at the, the dive bar is not what I'm recommending. So, yeah, that's that's the bulk of it. And then for anyone also who's listening, I said, um, choose liberty and your your choice. You have the choice. Don't let someone else direct your life. Um, as libertarians and people who believe in that, it's very important that in making the right choices, part is it knowing that you have a choice and not letting someone take that away from you. They, they can't, it's always your choice. Uh, even when they, you know, how you react to it. Um, the state has the, you know, the authority and the, the privilege of being able to use force to accomplish their goals right now. But for anything else in life, as long as you make the right choice and don't choose violence except in self-defense and and follow the rules and follow follow your ethical principles that you've got you're going to do okay but it's always your choice well said very well said and i apologize if if this will make you feel like you're repeating yourself but it's something i always do with everybody who shares their story but if you could talk to that one person in the audience who's listening to this that is struggling to find a way out What's the one thing that you could tell them? Just for today. Boom. It's all you need right there. It really is all you need. And I tell anyone, if they're reaching out, they feel like they've had trouble for you know months, year, a week, and they're they're trying, they're making a fresh start and to, they don't think they can do it. Is I just marked off on a sheet of paper every day. And I for every it started out at first every hour every minute and say, I can make it to the next hour. And then after all, I say, okay, it's time to go to sleep. I can make it. And the next day it's like, I just for today, I'm just going to make it today. Um, 
and as long as you focus on the short term and on be here now is a hippie book from from way back that uh, helped is very hippie feel good book but i the concepts in the book are like that for just for today if you're having those panic attacks worrying about the future um obsessing over the past the the phrase that gets repeated the mantra from those hippies that works amazingly for this is be here now just be right here right now it's a zen buddhism thing is uh, people get into mindfulness now and again kind of a bourgeois left coast vibe on that <laughs> i i mean it in a much more mundane <laughs> uh manner right again i'm not trying to cast shade on them i guess i am bullshit i'm i'm casting shade on their, their corporate uh zen bullshit but uh, they're trying to sell you a product i'm sure yeah God, see, I'm so cynical too. Still, after well, all I these mean, years, but let's be real about it, though. I mean, I mean, come <laughs> on. There, there's, there's obviously some value in it, but let, let's call it what it is, and it is a, a grift, you know, for That's a an, lot of folks. This thing is like a brown paper paperback book, with some hippie drawings, and that I say, along with just for today. If you're having trouble, take a deep breath, close your eyes, put your fingers on your temples, right on that that bone, gently, and just be right here, right now. Just breathe. And if you find your mind panicking, drifting, obsessing on something, just take another breath and be here right now. Are you there with your girlfriend, your dog, your cat, um, the table, you know, a pen and paper, just be right there right now. And for me, 57 and a half percent of the time, that was good enough. <laughs> it gets you through it. It really does. That is something that, I have to constantly remind myself and you you've seen, you know, where I've said that to other people, like in, in you know, in our little sober group and all of that, but like, that is the most, and the reason I give that information out so much is because I have to constantly remind myself that yesterday doesn't matter. The 24 hours we're in, that's it. That's all I got, man. Um, and back to one of the first things I said too, for those people, those, those skills to build the other one is that five by five. You're mad. You're going to yell, have a fight. Maybe you throw things. I don't, you know, whatever you, you, you yell, you storm out of the room with people and shut them off. Again, if you can manage to do it and I can't always, I, I still got a short fruit fuse. If you can manage to do it, just think to yourself, is this going to matter in five years? Mm. And I have a hard time with this one. I get, I get mad and I want to, you know, rant and stomp and be pissed off that part of that pissed off that kind of relates psychologically to the adrenaline and the rush, you know, did the part of the ego feeds on it, but just try to, I try to tell myself, I tell somebody else who's in those first days, just think, cause it's also funny. It's like, you know, they didn't give me my cheeseburger. Those fuckers. Um, it's too far to drive back and get it. Why didn't you check the bag? They didn't give me my damn cheeseburger. If that's not going to matter in five years, don't spend more than five minutes on it. Dude, that's that is potent, potent right there. And that, that I have to struggle with that every day still because I that part of my ego I want to be mad. I want to rage against the big corporation that's turning us all into um, <laughs> commodities and yeah, dude. and wage slaves. I want to rage against the people who are um, opening the borders to people who are just going to suck the country dry. I want to you know have that that path to get people into self direction, self empowerment and able to take care of themselves and get rid of these uh, unjust, unfair laws. And I, 
all the shitty things that you see going on. If you're into Liberty that are going on now, that want to make you mad. They want to make you furious and they want you to make mistakes. They want you to put yourself in a shittier situation so that they can control you. Yeah. Some of it, some of it may matter in five years, but the one thing that's bothering me right now today in my life, there's still a lot of my life that's self-directed and I have choice. And if it's something that's not going to matter to me when I'm on my rocking chair in 10 years or 20 years, you know, oh God, yes, really, man, didn't finish that part of that project. And tomorrow's Friday. It's supposed to be done. Somebody's going to be mad. What? 20 years from now, they're not going to care. Not going to give a shit at all. Not even going to know what happened. Exactly. You know? No one is going to know that happened. Uh, you would have a hard time having somebody who's actually going to care. They care at those corporations about not even this month, this quarter, these three months, and then the year. Like net earnings per share for that quarter in that year. They don't give a shit about, you know, everything else you hear for that is, is lies. The finance guys know what they want. And if it's not ultimately going to cause a problem for the next year's earnings report, it doesn't matter for those fucking people. Somebody who's their little tyrant in that department or your boss at the car dealership or at the blimpies or, you know, little Caesars, wherever you are, um, they can be mad and try to make your life hell, but you have to choose to let them. And again, it ain't going to matter when you're 70. No, no, <laughs> I, it's not. Unless you make it matter because you pick up a chair and hit them with it. It's going to matter. <laughs> yeah. Then, then it's, then it's a little bit different, you know, so at that that's point. What, that's what we're talking about. That's what I mean by this is if you just let that go, just let it go. And then, you know, so I've certainly wanted to grab that chair and just beat that dude with it, but I'm not, I am not that kind of person. Um, I have to watch that because there's part of your head. Like I said, you want to rage against the machine, unlike the band and actually they're pushing you to get you to do something wrong. And we have to be stronger than that. Yeah, dude. They'll let you get addicted to more alcohol when all the ads you see for the sports games, somebody will let you get addicted to whatever the other thing is. The hot thing this, you know, year they, they want you to make a mistake. Um, they really do. And I, I hate to say that like there's a, it's not like there's a conspiracy. I think that most things, and that's another topic to talk about. We, we get that challenge in philosophy online and discussions a lot. And I think in the Liberty movement, a couple of the um, young women, you'll see someone throw it out there. Some men, do you think people are overall more good or more evil? And we're a social animal. We're a, a group, a little extended family and tribe animal. And if they weren't, even under stress ever so slightly more good than evil, we wouldn't be here. It wouldn't be possible. Right. Even if one has their own selfish self-interest, directed interest um, at heart that they can accomplish more by being better to their immediate family and to the extended family and their tribe than not uh, the people who are psychopathic, um, that are not like that. The, the monsters that get in with <laughs> and run things uh, in politics, right. the ones who want to have that kind of control, that's a very small set of the people who are, who are that way. Um, they're actual psychopaths that have that dark triad and, you know, would whatever feature the pigs or, you know, disappear you. That's a small number of people. And the ones who are really bad people, often it's their circumstances. If they're, addicts or drug dealers. And it, again, the way the media is right now and the way that because of 24 seven media and the reach of the internet 
and the reach of information, it sounds like people are worse than they are. Any horrible thing like that poor girl whose boyfriend may have killed her or something happened to her recently that made the national news. It's part of that news cycle. And I feel for her family. And it makes you think the local news with all the you know, things that you'll see if you watch the local news for some of the cities, it looks like it's a war zone and it looks like things are terrible. Most people are out just living their life, doing their thing. If you smile or are nice to people, more often than not, you know, it's not a dog eat dog, violent, crime filled world here where we are. And in a lot of places where it's that rough, it's the people are still going to help out more often than not. The problem is that they're under control of tyrants and warlords and you know, bad politicians. Yeah. But again, think places you think, unless you're in some place like Yemen or Somalia or uh, some of those places that are bad because of a war at the time, or I mean, think of it was like in Afghanistan, I'm not going to go into politics. It's just for the average person there, unless they were in a spot where we were fucking with them or they were fucking with each other, that they were just living their life. It probably wasn't that different. Um, they had problems with like logistics and getting things and doing things. I'm not going to pretend that I know the stuff I've looked at with documentaries and stories on it. It's people are going to be slightly nicer than evil in the world, or they would have all died. Right. Um, right. And so that's why I tell, uh, we can have that debate more formally with somebody online. If y'all want to dare to do it, <laughs> we've got, I've got anthropology, archeology, span and all of history backing me up on this, that, People have to be slightly overall as the population, as a population statistic, slightly more good than evil, or we would not have this civilization. It wouldn't be possible. You see what happens in places where the evil people take control and the good people leave. Huh. You see exactly what happens. Yeah. And again, we, we don't get to, you can try to debate me on that. Anybody online, you want to step up, I'll come back on and we can have a debate. It's when the good people leave that evil triumphs. Dude, that's a good little white pill right there. That's a good little white pill. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. Thanks for letting me digress from the the main topic. Oh, absolutely, man. I I, I dig that. I had a uh, had a few buddies on the podcast last week, and we were kind of talking about how, especially in the current age, it's so easy to lose all hope especially, you know, the more you hang out on social media and watch the news and do anything but touch grass, you know, it's just so incredibly easy. And with the way that these vaccines are working their way into workplaces and yada, yada, yada. So any type of hope like that, I, I, I'm always down to platform it, man. Yes. If you can afford to take care of a, a pet, like a dog and are the luxury of being able to go to a park, like you said, and, and be away and just actually turn off the phone not to take selfies or, you know, do anything, just turn it off, leave it in your apartment or your house and take the dog. If you can treat the dog well, if you're at that point that you can have one and be responsible for it, take the dog, go to the park or go out in your backyard. Like you said, I don't know who came up with touch grass. That's a newer one to me. I see it a lot, but I, who started that? I don't know, but yeah, it's just, it, that's, but... that's a trope now meme for the people that anyway, seriously, that my dog is the best dog in the world. She's really smart. She knows like 50 words and you know, she's, she's so sweet. She's so chill. And just seeing the joy in her face as she runs around in the yard and being, like you said, out, I don't know if you're, I'm not sure I like touch grass yet, but okay, being away from this computer, I spent so much time sitting in front of this computer and I 
I've worked out now for years and, you know, lift and try to stay, have cardio and stuff and be in shape, being outside and away from this just is, is great. Knowing that I've got, you know, I'm in good shape for my age, better than almost anybody I know. And being able to just be outside and, and do stuff. Uh, some people, as you get older, it gets harder for me. It's like I had a, you know, rotator cuff screw up, had to have surgery for that. I got some bicep tendon screwed up. Right. It's like, okay, I got to nurture that at my age and I don't heal as fast. I've got to have the humility that I'm not <laughs> like I was, and I'm still in better <laughs> shape than I've ever been and go out and enjoy that. Like if you're, you know, overweight and get, foods getting taken the place of some of those drugs or alcohol, you know, it's not like I'm going to lecture anybody about, um, about that. I don't mean to, I'm just saying, take care of yourself as much as you can get out in the world and disconnect from this stuff. All this don't watch those need feeds on, on Twitter and Facebook and all this stuff. Whenever I do, if we sit there and watch Tucker, I just get angry. Yeah, dude. I, and again, I, it's funny. I love it. And some of my politics is aligned with it. And I think he's cool. But if I watch it every day, I get so angry. I can't do it. And you know, we've got a garden I've got, you know, a place I can go and be in the, the woods. Thankfully, if I want to, I know I can, disconnect and take the dog and just, she's just happy to be with me. And so, yeah, you need to get out and do that. I think the best thing for everybody and probably not just in the program, some people need to be able to reach their sponsor or their family or they have, you know, they need it for something. Um, but just disconnect and take that time to again, to just be here now and be with a pet or with your loved one at, at peace somewhere and not, not have that flood information that makes things look so bad, especially like right now. He said, for the place I'm at where I live now, thankfully for me, I mean, as a libertarian, um, <laughs> that the people are from that other political group, from, you know, that you'd be familiar with. I think they have like red hats or something. I don't know. That was their thing, like some red hat thing and a lot right. of American flags, you know. Um, a lot of people there are less likely to yell at you for not wearing a mask into a shop. So I'm very fortunate to be there where if you're just out doing your thing, it's more normal. I'm, again, I have that luxury of being a place where it's, it's more like normality. So unless something changes from our overlords where they were to try to have a lockdown, I think that it wouldn't where I'm at. I don't think it would fly. I think people just ignore it. Yeah, I think I'm very much so. As a matter of fact, I was, I walked into a, uh, burger shop this evening with my with my wife and it was jam-packed not a mask in sight and i'm wearing my print guns not money t-shirt <laughs> and i had somebody say hey man that's a great shirt you know what i mean so i'm in a great uh kind of semi-rural community out here so i think i'm in the same spot as you so we are fortunate in that regard i'm way further up that's another thing i did more recently was moved away from the city and i'm much further out in a much smaller place and it's just better the stress of, it, man. the stress that i'm again fortunate to be able to do that i'm i worked from home before anyway except when traveling to see clients and so now with ever since covid hit the previous work i was doing also was you know i went out to the client site once twice in a year ever so there's not as much travel and now everyone and all of my clients that are at my level are like we don't want to pay for plane tickets and hotels anymore because we don't need to so that's very fortunate. I was able to move somewhere that's further out. It could change. I might have to adapt 
in the future. But for right now, like I said, it's easy to just be away from from all that noise. I, I can't imagine being in some of the places like New York or Seattle or no nah, man or Australia. We don't want to talk about it. again. That's a whole nah. other show. But yeah, I, I I can't even imagine being in the UK or Australia, but much less here, like DC or New York or Seattle or Portland. Oh God, anywhere like that would be it would be such hell. And I'm in some, you know, little, <laughs> little place. Where, like I said, I can just wander around with the dog in the, the front yard and not, it, if you didn't, if you disconnect, you don't know. And I, right. again, it, if you have, you know, the luxury of being able to do that or make the choice to do it, it there are a couple of little parks near me where people play Frisbee golf still. I didn't know that was still a thing, nice. but, you know, and you could just, there's a dog park there and you can just go. And like you said, and disconnect from it. And when you get out there, it's that same thing I was saying about people mostly being nice. They're just doing their thing. They're trying to live their life. If you can manage to get to a, a good place in your own heart and your own mind and smile at people and don't have an agenda with them and let them not have one, one with you and get away from that news cycle. If you do it for a few days, you're like, Oh yeah, things are pretty good. Now I'm not saying that politically we have to just believe that until the overlords take over every aspect of our lives, right. which they will if somebody doesn't fight. And you know, we can't have good men do nothing and right. women do nothing, but just for a little bit, be able to disconnect and realize that the world isn't really, isn't really that. Yeah, without a doubt, man. Well, man, uh, yes, it has been a wonderful. Uh, conversation with you. Your story is beautiful. I can't wait for people to hear this. And do you, by any chance, do you have anything you want to plug or not really? The only thing I'd say, if someone wants to to reach out and enjoy Liberty-based um, edgelord tweets and and jokes, and then also some sciencey shit sometimes, that's what you see there for Yes Really Man. It's at Yes Really Man on Twitter um, and pretty much nowhere else because none of your business. <laughs> Am I being detained? Get off my lawn. Exactly. Right on, man. All right, brother. Well, you have a wonderful evening, sir. You too. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Anytime, bud. All right. There you go. Thanks again to Yes Really Man for coming on and sharing a story with us. And especially thank you for laying that five by five. It never ceases to amaze me that whenever anybody comes on the show, there's always something I take away from it. And that's kind of what my sponsor used to tell me, or he, I mean, he still does. He'll knock me over the head with it, but he says that every meeting I go to anytime, another addict is sharing any bit of information. There is always something that I can take away from it. And for me, it was the five by five thing, especially like right now, right? Like there's just so much shit going on in the world it's so easy to just get flustered and caught up in it. And, you know, don't sweat the small stuff. If it's not going to matter five years from now, don't spend any more than five minutes being upset about it. I had another sponsor who actually told me that if you're mad for more than 15 minutes, you're enjoying it way too damn much. And I got to agree, you know. I, I don't agree in the moment, especially when I'm being told that shit. <laughs> you know, like that makes me mad. But it is what it is. So, um and also, just if it's not already obvious at this point, for those of you who've been following along, if you're out there and you have a story of recovery um, and you don't want your identity out there, but you would like to share your story, 
Here's yet another example of how your total and complete anonymity is assured on this show. I don't use video. Uh, you can use any pseudonym you would like and, and we'll run with it. The most important thing is that you have a very valuable story and not only myself, but also my audience, we would love to hear from you. So, you know, reach out to me, reach out to me on social media, uh, you know, pretty much on Twitter, but my wife runs the Facebook page for the, for the, uh, for the podcast and just holler at me. I'll bring you on in a heartbeat. And, uh, yeah, that's it. Going to roll right into it. So I I had a friend share this. So John Joseph was the Cro-Mags lead singer way back when, um, particularly, particularly on the Age of Quarrel album. And he recently posted this on Facebook, and I had to share it. And as a result, had to obviously put a Cro-Mags song on this episode. But he says, to come from a scene of movement, that has always questioned the government narrative because they have always lied. I mean, how many bands wrote albums about it? Now, some of those same people tell us the government loves us. The crooked corporations are our friends. The media is honest. And worst of all, they try to throw shade at people who stay true to their values. It shows how many of them were total fucking posers. All it took was the great bullshit detector pressure. Hasta la vista, bitches. Man. I cannot tell you how refreshing it is for somebody from the scene from way back when from the American hardcore era who was saying this because watching bands like the Dead Kennedys, watching Henry Rollins, watching all of these people who once lamented and just had so much rage and fire for the establishment roll over, endorse people like Biden, endorse people like Trump, endorse this great big massive government and then also like hint at these corporations being anything but the sleaze balls that they are god man it's a kick in the nuts you know punk is dead <laughs> i mean punk is so dead but john joseph gives me hope you know and so had to do a chromag song at the end of this episode because of that just in honor of it so this is don't tread on me off the age of quarrel by the chromag <laughs> 